1: This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpethanchel. Recent events in Ukraine show the eight-month-old war has ramped up. The Washington Post reports the country's capital, Kyiv, faces power outages and more damage after Russia launched sustained missile attacks this week there and in other cities across Ukraine. This escalation comes after the Crimean Bridge was destroyed over the weekend. In a few minutes, we get an update from Missy Ryan, the Washington Post's national security reporter in Kyiv. And later, we talk to a Connecticut native and Ukrainian-American who lives in Ukraine and is helping the war effort. Later, we check in with Connecticut residents who have welcomed Ukrainian refugees to our state. And we talk to one of them who has settled here. First, with us on the phone again is Missy Ryan, national security correspondent, a reporter at The Washington Post. She's currently reporting from Kiev and and is calling us from there. Missy, welcome to the show. Thank you. We know this has been an incredibly active week for the war in Ukraine. Can you update our listeners and what you're seeing and hearing today?
2: Yeah, well, the capital, Kyiv is once again in the center of the conflict uh, that Ukraine is undergoing against Russia. For months, the action had been taking place in central and eastern Ukraine as Ukrainian forces tried to take back territory that had been captured by Russia, and there uh, there had been a sort of relative calm that had returned to the the capital here in Kyiv. And that ended abruptly on Monday when Russia launched uh, a huge barrage of missile strikes, some 80, 80 some cruise missiles and all, hitting the, the very heart of Kyiv, which it had never done before, and then also other Ukrainian cities. And that that the Kremlin said was retaliation for this explosion that hit the Crimean Bridge, this key uh, link that, that links Russia, mainland Russia to Crimea over the Kurds Strait. That happened on Saturday, and while the Ukrainian government has not officially claimed responsibility for that incident, Putin blamed Ukraine's special services. And so, really, this marks a really significant escalation in the war, and a potential turning point as, you know, you have the, the the confluence of Russia's annexation of four additional oblasts or regions of Ukraine. Uh, you have Putin referencing and his aide referencing repeatedly the potential for the use of nuclear weapons. And then you have this attack that struck um, not just um Um, power stations, or attempted to strike power stations, which is is what happened here in Keys, but also civilian areas. So we were down in the center of Keys um, just about 90 minutes after the first missile struck, and you could see um, mangled cars and burned-out cars in in this very busy intersection that killed a number of people as they commuted to work. And then another site right nearby was, um, there was a giant crater that was left in a a very popular park right next to uh, a playground. And so, you know, this really is a moment where the Ukrainian government has hardened its stance the same. Not only are we not going to negotiate with Russia right now, we will not negotiate with any Russian government that includes Putin. And you have Western countries, the G7, NATO, saying we're going to provide more air defenses um, because clearly that is what's needed um, here in Ukraine. And, and at the same time, the Kremlin doubling down. So I think it's a very stark Um, contrast there and a a very um, high tension moment in the war. Mm.
1: At the same time, there's also been more reports of mass graves, uh, reports uh, of torture and and also sexual assault. Uh, You know, how are Ukrainians responding uh, to uh, more of these reports as they come out, Missy?
2: Yeah, well, I think that is a significant element in why the Ukrainian position has hardened in recent months you know, as Ukrainian forces take back more and more towns and villages, they find, uh, they found more and more apparent mass graves. They, we get more and more accounts of what life was like under Russian occupation, and that included apparently systemic abuses, including sexual violence, including, you know, um, torture, and this really has served to, I think, harden not just the Ukrainian government, but the Ukrainian people. And going out and talking to people here in Cuba over the last few days, despite the ongoing threat of um, seemingly indiscriminate uh, missile attacks, you just have this incredible resilience um, and defiance that you hear from Ukrainians who are here, many of them with their children, um, who are determined to stay in Ukraine despite what comes, and uh, who really say that they're going to see this out for the long haul. So, you know, I think that um, there is no sign of any sort of peace or political negotiation or any kind soon. And I think the big question is, where does this go in terms of the military fight and the potential for greater escalation? Mm -hmm.
1: We know President Biden um, made comments about preparing for Armageddon and the possibility of nuclear war. what can you tell us about the response uh, that you've heard uh, in Ukraine? And, you know, is this a real possibility, Missy?
2: I mean, you know, nobody knows what um, Putin would or wouldn't do. I mean, we have had some statements from the U.S. government who have their own means um, for monitoring this. There have been no signs, and and from NATO as well, um, that there have been no signs that Russia is taking uh, steps that would indicate potential use of a nuclear weapon. President Biden said, uh, yesterday or the day before, that he still treats Putin as a um, rational actor, um, and and you really have um, Ukrainians here I'm kind of shrugging it off. I mean, actually, right now as we're speaking, there is a nationwide um, air alert. I'm just looking at you know a, an app um, that people have here on their phones, and and all of uh, Ukraine, all of uh, Ukraine except for Crimea uh, is under you know, threat of air sirens and, and uh, of, of air attacks excuse me, and, and people are supposed to be taking shelter. But at the same time, you know, I just came into my hotel and there's people out and about, you know, people are doing their errands, walking around, very very casual. And I think that, you know, part of that is just that he's went through um, a more intense um, uh, series of attacks early in the war and people are now used to it. But there's also a sense of defiance that, you know, even though, On Monday, people were taking shelter. uh, Hundreds of people take shelter in metro stations and in bunkers. Just like, you know, as this goes on, I think people also need to live their lives. And and, um, they uh, are basically, you know, the message that I hear from the Ukrainians who are here is that they are not going to let the war, um, you know, cow them.
1: Mm. You referenced uh, Western countries earlier pledging delivery of, of anti-missile uh, systems. Can you talk a little bit about the international support pledged so far? And is it enough to aid Ukraine as they're seeing this war escalate, Missy? Um,
2: I think that remains to be seen. You know, uh, Zelensky, President Zelensky said today in an address with um, European officials that Ukraine had 10% of what it needs in terms of air defense architecture, and um, there are signs that there's going to be acceleration of certain systems that are sort of in the pipeline or have been in the pipeline including some air defense systems in the United States. Um, there, There's no possibility of them getting everything they need in the near term, simply because those systems don't exist, um, and there isn't a surplus that... Countries have that they, that, you know, that they feel like they don't need for their own defenses that they can give to Ukraine. And while the U.S. government, for example, has is, you know undertaking procurement for additional air defense systems to be made, that will take months, if not years. Um, and so there certainly is an air defense gap that will persist. And um, you know, I think it's a question of whether or not they can, get, they can patch together something a little bit stronger in the near term. Uh, and then it sort of depends on what Russian tactics will be, how significant a problem that is.
1: You've been hearing Missy Ryan here where we live. She's a national security reporter at The Washington Post, currently reporting from Kiev, Ukraine. Missy, thank you for joining us with this update. We hope that you and your colleagues remain safe. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall Coming up after a short break, we're going to talk to a Manchester, Connecticut native who's living in Kiev. Now, are you part of the Ukrainian-American community in our state? You can join us, too, 888-720-9677. That's 888 720 Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchal. Today we get an update on Ukraine as Russia intensifies missile strikes in recent days. The Washington Post reports residents in Kyiv are preparing for potential cuts to power, heat, and water. My next guest is from Manchester, Connecticut, and has been living in Ukraine for some time. Larissa Babi has a newsletter chronicling her thoughts during the war there. It's called A Kind of Refugee. We'll tweet out a link uh, on our uh, Twitter, at where we live. Larissa Babi joins us again from Kiev. She's a writer, translator, and dancer. Larissa, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me. I mentioned that you grew up in Manchester and you have Ukrainian roots. Can you tell us about that and how you found yourself living in Ukraine?
5: well um i am how to say a grandchild of world war ii all four of my grandparents were born in ukraine and for under various circumstances had to leave their homeland in 1943 and so if we fast forward that's how my parents came to meet in the ukrainian american community in connecticut and eventually my sister and i were born um The Ukrainian diaspora, especially the post-war diaspora, um, because of this having to leave their beloved homeland under duress, basically were very strongly um, attached to their roots and really put a lot of effort into maintaining um, through the generations. And so even though I was born in the U.S., i was taught to speak ukrainian i went to saturday school i did ukrainian folk dancing i was part of a ukrainian scout organization and this really this upbringing kind of enveloped me in a great um, patriotic love for the homeland of my ancestors Mm
1: And so when the war began, uh, U.S. citizens, of course, were were warned uh, to uh, return uh, to the States. And you decided to stay in Ukraine. Why?
5: Well, I've been living in Ukraine for 17 years now. Um, I, eventually, I first moved here in 2005, basically as a way to learn something about what present-day Ukraine is like. Um, and basically made my home here. i put down, you know, I spent most of my adult life here and put down roots. And I've also invested a lot of myself in this country. I worked for many years in the contemporary art community. And when you've really put your lifetime and energy into making a place, the kind of place that you want to live in, even if you don't succeed, uh, you kind of keep making these attempts over and over again. Uh, You really don't want to give it up. And so, you know, come January of this year, I just, I didn't want to leave my home. Um, We had some tense conversations with my parents and my sister who still live in the United States and they were definitely concerned. And when it kind of came down to it, um, at some point, rather than arguing with them personally, I just wrote you a know, kind of impassioned Facebook post the weekend before February 24th explaining that uh, if you just abandon your home, if you just abandon your place, if all the Ukrainians were just to kind of flee preemptively because maybe Russia might attack at that time, I had no idea what was going to happen, um, then it's like a sort of preemptive capitulation and You know what's what's the point um if you're invested in something and living somewhere then you your life is attached to it
1: Mm. so what has life been like for you uh, with uh, this war now uh, eight months uh, going and with the escalation can you describe what you have um, seen and also what you're involved in 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 kiev to help the war effort
4: well a
5: lot has happened (laughs) over the past eight months um On February 24th, I woke up in my bed in Kyiv and a friend of mine called and alerted me to the fact that we were being uh, hit by missiles from Russia. It was a great shock and surprise. And at that day, I fled Kyiv with several friends and our cats. And I spent the first few months from the end of February, probably till about May, in the Western Ukrainian city of Lviv. Um, And this entire period of time has just been like endless uncertainty and a kind of adapting to the moment. Um, On the one hand, there is this need to take care of yourself and your survival. But on the other hand, as long as I am okay and at any given moment, I want to do what I can to help others. Um, Being an American and being in touch with Americans was sort of an organic, um, how to say it so happened that everybody I had ever met in my entire life who knew that I was Ukrainian started contacting me immediately in those last days of February. And, um, they not only did wanted to know if I was safe, but they wanted to know how they could help. So I became a kind of liaison with, um, kind of a string of different aid organizations. I've done everything from helping, um, How to say, you know, basically coordinating between people living abroad um, who want to either donate money or supplies to help people in Ukraine. And I've worked with organizations that help refugees in the west of the country that provide medical aid to hospitals, to soldiers on the front line. And more recently, um, with members of the Ukrainian Armed Forces who are um, doing both aerial reconnaissance and building their own drones from scratch to put to use on the front lines.
1: We heard from Missy Ryan from The Washington Post earlier, and she talked about the resiliency of the Ukrainian people, the fact that there was an air alert going on right now and people were still walking around. uh, Um, And I'm wondering if you can talk about that and and what it's like uh, to be in Kyiv right now.
5: Well, I have over these past eight months, I've been in many places and kind of with like varying degrees of safety. Um, I have lived in the city of Mykolaiv uh, for a couple of months in the summer, which is, you know, 10 to 15 miles from the front. And that's a city that was being, in is to this day, actually today there was a pretty serious missile strike that killed several people in a residential building, but it's hit by Russian missiles on a daily basis. Um, and then I've been in Lviv in the West, and I've been in Poland, and I was even in the United States. And something that I noticed is the further you are from the actual events of war, the easier it is to kind of get, um, by imagining the horrors that you see in the media and just kind of imagining how scary it could be i become more fearful and when i'm actually on the ground and in a place where you know i like i'm i understand that i live in a war zone and you just sort of accept that you put a lot of trust into your own senses your physical senses to be able to hear if something explodes you can kind of gauge the distance that it is from you um and even then, your own intuition of just kind of having a feel for for your environment and so a lot of decisions you make on the spot um, you can't really know in advance what you're going to need to do you just you need to be prepared for a lot of different things and a lot of different scenarios and kind of hold all of those possibilities in mind mm.
1: I mentioned uh, your blog on uh, Substack, and again, we tweeted out a link at where we live. Uh, in one of your uh, excerpts, you've written, if Russia stops fighting, the war will end. If Ukraine stops fighting, Ukraine will disappear. Can you talk more about um, you know, what you were hoping to convey in that particular post? And when you see this escalation and the fact that no one knows what's going to be happening, uh, in the future, um, you know, how you feel about, um, you know, the what's happened to Ukraine and to the, so many who have, have had to, to leave.
5: That's a lot of things <laughs> that you just asked. Um, it really hit home. OK. Um, first of all, I think the key part of this phrase is if Ukraine stops fighting, that Ukraine will disappear. Um, Ukraine's fight against Russian invasion is existential. It is a matter of survival at a base level. Um, But it's really a fight to be able to live on your own land under self-governance, not as a slave. Ukraine has a history of... um, being subsumed under different empires, including the Russian Empire. It has a 70-year history of being a part of the Soviet Union, which was kind of a self-imposed concentration camp. Uh, The Soviet Union murdered millions and millions and tens of millions of its own citizens. And what is happening right now is Ukraine's fight to stop that Soviet project, which still is basically being enacted by Russia's invasion right now, um, to put a limit to this endless death and destruction. And it's important to know that Russia is not going to stop fighting by itself. It's not playing by the same rules that you know the club of Western democratic nations and the members of the EU states and NATO. Um, that they demand of their partner countries. Russia is waging an expansive war of destruction, and they will do everything in their power to destroy every inch of Ukraine and keep going. So Ukraine is doing its damnedest to stop Russia, but it needs all of its partners and everybody who doesn't want this kind of evil to keep spreading we all have to work together to stop russia
1: there must be a level of, of frustration uh, with uh, you know western countries have pledged uh, again support for anti missile systems but you mentioned the eu when you see uh, what you know france and, and and germany have said in terms of what they will and will not uh, pursue uh, to help mm-hmm. ukraine and you know how is that being discussed where you are
5: um it's something that my Ukrainian friends and I keep talking about, and we keep talking about with our Western colleagues. I had mentioned before I worked for a long time uh, in the contemporary art world. And so, you know, many of my friends have contacts in France, in Germany. Um, I have many contacts in the United States and we just, you know, we keep having to bring, to bring this, this message home that this is not, some kind of you know family spat between ukraine and russia but throughout the world in the u.s and in europe and even in germany like i think there's been a lot of reflection after world war ii on the crimes of nazi germany as a totalitarian state but far less reflection on the crimes of the soviet union as a totalitarian state and that has allowed um the dangers of the Soviet project, which have are continuing to live uh, both in what the Russian Federation is doing right now and even in you know, other aspects of, of international discourse. Anyways, um, it's really important to recognize that we need to kind of come together and and how to say they keep this conversation going because basically the fact that Western nations like Germany have pledged all of a sudden to send fancy air defenses to Ukraine very quickly is beautiful. But it's it's nice that they decide to do that, you know, after 84 Russian missiles were sent into civilian targets all over Ukraine. This war has been going on for eight months at this scale. Um, And it's just taking the West a really long time to realize that this is real. um, And that if you don't do anything, you know, more people are going to be dying and it's your inaction basically means that these deaths are on your conscience. Mm -hmm.
1: Larissa, what are your, what are your conversations like with your family? Uh, They must be hard conversations at times. They must worry about you.
5: Yes. Yes. My family has been incredibly supportive um, and I'm, Deeply, deeply grateful uh, for, first of all, that they don't tell me about how much they worry. They kind of keep that to themselves. Um, And we speak at least once a week uh, over Zoom, kind of like we did earlier. Uh, They have sent a lot of money to various organizations that I've been involved with to, to help both Ukraine relief efforts and Ukrainian military efforts. Uh, they are also doing a lot in Connecticut and in their local communities to kind of rally support for Ukraine, um, including from the U.S. government to help supporting Ukraine's war effort. So I am I appreciate that a lot.
1: Mm. Well, we appreciate the time you've spent with us uh, here on the show. Larissa Babi, again, a writer, translator, and dancer who lives in Kyiv, Ukraine. Uh, She's a Manchester, Connecticut native. Uh, We thank you for your time on the show. We'd love to to catch up with you again in a few months.
5: Thanks so much, Lucy.
1: You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. Coming up, we're going to hear from a Ukrainian who has settled in Connecticut and learn more about efforts in our state to help others who fled since the war began. First, Where We Live brings you conversations about Connecticut and its residents, and we talk about issues that impact us here at home. Please help support the and you hear on Connecticut Public with a pledge. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. We've been getting an update on the war in Ukraine. And my next guest is a private immigration attorney for Myrtha Kalina, who started a matching program to help Ukrainian refugees settle in our state after the war began. To date, Dana Buchan has matched more than 80 Ukrainians with Connecticut families. You can learn more about this program at ctukraine.org. Dana Buchin is also Honorary Consul of Romania to Connecticut. She joins us now on Zoom. Dana, welcome back to the show. Hello, Lucy. Thank you for having me. So I understand you've matched, I believe, 85 Ukrainians with Connecticut families or sponsors, and most of them are now here in our state. They're either living with their local sponsor or in a house financed by a local sponsor. So tell us briefly about the families that have come here so far and the relationship that they've they've had now with sponsors in our state.
3: It is important to note that these sponsors are ordinary citizens, people who are not even related to the refugees, people who have reached out to me following the press coverage of my trip to the border with Mexico, where I went to help about 2,000 Ukrainian refugees back in April. And when I came back, there was intense press coverage of uh, the first Ukrainian refugees arriving at Bradley Airport. Following that coverage, I've been getting people like Katie, who's, who you're going to hear from very soon, uh, reach out to me and say, we want to open our homes for a Ukrainian family. Please tell us how we can connect with one. Um, I at, at the beginning, I didn't know how to do that connection, but um, It turns out that following my border trip a lot of ukrainians signed up with me to be matched with connecticut sponsors i've also gotten uh, calls from romania from ukrainian refugees uh, who took temporary shelter in romania and they wanted to come here as well and on the other side i got sponsors from all over the united states to reach out to me in response to the press coverage So I saw an opportunity to do this matching program, which is completely voluntary. And it's a public service initiative of the honorary consulate of Romania with the law firm of Martha Kalina. And 85 uh, refugees uh, who come from all over Ukraine, but especially the Eastern parts of of Ukraine um, have been uh, resettling in Connecticut under the Uniting for Ukraine federal um humanitarian parole program that has been in effect since late April 2022 and they come with all sorts of uh, skill sets so for example we have a bunch of chefs uh, pastry chefs included HR professionals um, dental office managers IT folks hearing aid specialists construction workers artists former cop who's now disabled um etc so there's a mix of skill sets here and um i am very proud to report that the romanian american community whom i'm uh, probably representing as an honorary consul, has stepped up to the plate to help our ukrainian neighbors and has offered them jobs at their businesses um for example Transylvania restaurant and bar that's opening, the grand opening is October 22nd, is hiring Ukrainian refugees. We have Avila Luisa, who's also hiring um, Ukrainian chefs, etc.
1: It's really great to hear that so many people have stepped up to help. You mentioned Katie. That's Katie Bloss, who's a Guilford, Connecticut resident who's with us on Zoom. Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you. So tell us how you've been helping Ukrainians who've had to leave their homes and resettle here.
0: Well, um, back in the 90s, um, during the Bosnian War, you know, of course, like today, where we see all of the horrific video of the attacks in Ukraine, we were watching back then the attacks in Bosnia and just hearing how awful that war was. I was a single parent working full time. My daughter, oldest daughter, Jessie, was seven years old and we attended a church in Brantford and um, a couple came to our church and and asked if uh, people would consider sponsoring Bosnian refugees, many of whom had been in refugee camps for years. And not knowing any better, I raised my hand and said, sure. (laughs) I had a couple of, I I had a three bedroom house and I moved my daughter into my master bedroom and I had two bedrooms and um, ended up sponsoring two different families that lived with us for a while um, and helping them get on their feet and find jobs and apartments and furniture and all of that. And that extended out to, I probably have, you know, 20 or 30 wonderful Bosnian friends and um, that, you know, are, are still friends to this day. And it was such a great experience for Jesse and I. Um, I never forgot that.
1: And you did and it again.
0: <laughs> when we yeah. heard about the Ukrainian war, we actually we started thinking about this. My husband, Bill, and I um, were talking about it when the Afghanis were airlifted last summer. And but housing, of course, is an issue. So we we looked around and found a, a house that needed a lot of help, and um, I spent about five months fixing that up. And with the idea that we were going to have um, at first Afghani's, and then a lot of them were rehomed. And the Ukrainian war started, and and I was a little frustrated in how to make this move a little faster. And I saw the the uh, the news about what Dana was doing and reached out to her and she was wonderful. And the connection was great and, and just happened pretty quickly.
1: And so you've been uh, helping Nina and her family. Well,
0: so what we thought the house that, that we fixed up um, is actually it's, it has about five bedrooms. And um, what we thought was that um, uh, that we would, Join two moms together since their husbands can't leave and, and moms with kids and um, hopefully they would help to support each other. So it's Nina and her son, Damien and daughter uh, Kate, and then um, Olena and her daughter, Lisa. Right. They did not know each other. So I said, listen, you know, I connected with them on WhatsApp and I said, you guys have to talk and see if you want to do this.
1: Yeah, And Nina is with us as well. Nina Oponacinko, again, who's Ukrainian, who came here with her two children. Nina, first of all, we're so glad to hear that that you, you've been welcomed uh, by Katie and others. Uh, tell us about uh, your time here in Connecticut. Hi,
4: Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, tomorrow will be almost uh, four, three months uh, since I'm in the U.S., in, in Guilford also,
1: uh, and uh, I like it. Mm. And tomorrow, I think you'd also mentioned before the show that you'll be starting your first job in the States. Uh, yes.
4: Uh, I will be... Uh, uh, Cook in new restaurant in New Haven.
1: Wonderful, and and how are your children doing uh, since uh, the move here?
4: Also, they are—they both are at school. My daughter is junior, and my son is in third grade. Uh, school. Mm-hmm.
1: And you mentioned you've been here for three months. Uh, tell us about the, your decision uh, to leave.
0: Hmm.
4: Also, I leave Ukraine on, in probably one week after war starts and uh, I go to Poland during long six, six days. I drive 15 hours per day uh, across four countries uh, to uh, a bedded house in uh, Poland uh, village and I live here uh, almost five months. And Polish people are very afraid that Poland can be next country where war starts. So my decision to go to U.S. was very hard, but I did it. Mm.
1: And uh, you've gotten um, support from people uh, like Katie and, and Dana. What do you want our listeners to know about uh, the Ukrainians who've had to leave their home and start a new life here?
4: In Ukraine, I have a very good life. I have everything. I was a homeowner. I have a nice job and I like it. I have all opportunities to travel. I have friends. So uh, it was really hard. Uh, And here I learn every day, like, everything, like, casual uh, things for Americans. For me, it's sometimes hard, like, go to grocery or order something or do any paperwork uh or just just understand local culture, but I studied it almost every day
1: mm-hmm. uh Dana Buchin is still with us uh, as we hear uh Nina talk about uh, her transition you know the journey here is one thing, but the uh, the ability to restart uh, their lives is a whole other journey and can you talk about that, Dana?
3: Sure. Uh, The first obstacle that Ukrainian uh, uh, humanitarian parolees have is uh, navigating the travel authorization that they have to obtain to even come to the United States. Fortunately, that's the simplest part. Uh, Then they have to uh, step on U.S. soil and apply for a work permit, which can take anywhere from four weeks to three months to obtain. Fortunately for... uh, NINA, SHE ALREADY RECEIVED IT. OUR OFFICE ASSISTS uh, REFUGEES uh, WITH with OBTAINING THE the WORK PERMIT. THEN HER NEXT uh, HURDLE IN TERMS OF PAPERWORK IS ACCESSING FEDERAL BENEFITS uh, THAT ARE AVAILABLE TO HUMANITARIAN parolees AND REFUGEES IN GENERAL, SUCH AS HEALTH INSURANCE, HEALTH COVERAGE OR CASH ASSISTANCE if, IF THAT'S THE CASE. Um, OR ENGLISH LANGUAGE LESSONS OR JOB PLACEMENT SERVICES WHICH IN THE STATE OF CONNECTICUT ARE ADMINISTERED THROUGH REFUGEE RELOCATION AGENCIES SUCH AS IRIS. Um, THEN THE NEXT BURDEN IS FIGURING OUT WHAT TO DO uh, BY THE END OF THE TWO YEARS THAT SHE RECEIVED ON HUMANITARIAN PAROLE. IT COULD BE THAT SHE WANTS IF SHE she DOES WANT TO STAY IN THE U.S. PERMANENTLY IN WHICH CASE WE HAVE TO figure out her options, it could be asylum, it could be a green card sponsorship through employment, it could be a number of other things that would help her stay here. Asylum is an appropriate remedy for a person in this situation because she risks persecution if returned back to Ukraine based on her nationality as Ukrainian by a force with the Russian army that the Ukrainian government cannot yet control. And so that's the classic definition of someone who deserves asylum protection. Mm. It would be my honor to represent her with that.
1: Well, thank you for laying that out for us, Dana. Nina, we're happy to hear that you and your children are doing well, and good luck on your your first day on the job tomorrow. We thank you for coming on the show uh, to share a little bit of your story with us. Thank you. Uh, we just have a, a two minutes left, and we want to thank Katie Bloss from Guilford, uh, who is, again, welcoming Anita and his family and another family from Ukraine uh, to our state over the recent months. Dana, for listeners uh, who want to learn more about how they can help, what can you tell them?
3: Yes, yeah, so first and foremost, housing, it's our priority need right now. A lot of people wanna help, but we need people who have housing or the means to pay for rent for these refugees, at least for the first three to six months until they could um, you know, get their bearings and uh, get a work permit and start working. So if you are a person who could mobilize housing, not only by yourself, but with the help of your support system, Access CTUkraine.org or Google my name, Dana Buchin, and um, contact me because I could be matching you with a Ukrainian family. We have over 200 Ukrainian families still needing to be matched. Mm. Thank you.
1: That's Dana Buchan, again, an immigration attorney at Mirtha Kalina, Honorary Consul of Romania to Connecticut, who started this matching program uh, to help Ukrainians uh, restart their lives here in our state. Thank you so much, Dana, for your time on the show. Thank
3: you,
1: Lucy. Also, again, thank you to Nina Opanasenko and Katie Bloss from Guilford. I'm Lucy Nalpithanshul. Test Terrible produced today's show. You can support the conversations and news you hear on where we live and Connecticut public with a pledge during our fall membership campaign. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you more.